the Real Life Theology Podcast, previously known as the Renew.org Network Podcast. I'm Cammie, and today we are going to be looking at another breakout session from the Renew.org Gathering. This specific breakout session features Ellen Radcliffe as she discusses gender and the Bible. As a Christian woman who has previously struggled with her sexual orientation, she is able to give us a biblical perspective on how to counter the world's view of the LGBT community. She also gives advice on how we can love our close friends or family who are struggling with their sexual identity, but still uphold the standards of God at the same time. This session holds a lot of information, so open your ears and your hearts for the words Ellen has to share today. So my name is Doug Robertson. The only reason I introduced myself really quickly is I want to spend my 60 seconds uh, introducing Ellen as a testimony to what she does. Uh, I'm the executive minister of Harvard Christian Church. Good afternoon. We had Ellen come in a few months ago. Good to see everybody. Church my name is Chad Ellis. And I, I think that the reason there's so many people here, and I'm so happy that you're here, is that this is such a big subject that we just cannot continue to just sweep under the rug and not talk about. And so uh, I can tell you that you guys are in for a treat with Ellen and that she is very courageous, very educated, and I can say for me and a lot of people at our church after she came and spoke, lots of light bulbs and understanding went off with our people. Um, you know, I'm a sinful man and I struggle with sin. Um, I don't struggle with this one, so I don't understand it until somebody like Ellen shares with me what, you know, what she's been through and, and how she helps people deal with this. So anyway, Ellen Radcliffe. Well, thanks, Doug. Oh, let me turn this on. Is it on? Yep. Thanks, Doug. And uh, thanks, everyone, for being here with me this morning uh, to discuss this Super breezy conversation, right, about transgender and gender identity. Uh, before we do anything with this topic, let me just give you a little bit of background information on me. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home with God at the center of my household and with unconditionally loving parents. But even still, even with all these blessings that God implemented in my life, I grew up very insecure, mostly in my femininity. See, I grew up in a home where my dad was sort of the, the traditional, stereotypical epitome of a man, right? He's rough and tough and gruff. And my mom is the opposite, sort of the traditional, stereotypical epitome of what a woman is in our culture. She's gentle and quiet and nurturing. And I am just like my dad in personality and in character, which is something I can be very proud of now. But as a young girl, with a tender heart and deep insecurities and then assumptions about myself based on those insecurities, this led me to the conclusion that I was broken as a woman, that something was wrong with me because I didn't match up to this bar of femininity that I set for myself. And that bar was my mom's example of femininity, which I could not naturally emulate. So I walked around with this incredible shame my whole life unknowingly masking it in my preteen and teenage years as anger and hardness and bitterness, especially directed toward my mom. Because deep down, I resented her example of femininity and the inadequacy that it bred in my heart. So when I got into high school, after you know my whole life harboring this shame, uh, looking for validation that I was woman enough, I very innocently 
befriended a girl who uh, I just simply admired, right? She's a bit more like me. She was passionate, opinionated, strong-willed, but she seemed okay with those parts of her, whereas I had grown up so ashamed of those parts of me. And uh, so what started out as genuine admiration, curiosity, very quickly turned into emotional, emotional enmeshment and then idolatry and then eventually obsession. You know, my entire sense of self-worth and identity was completely wrapped up in this friend and in our friendship. And so when this level of emotional attachment has reached this level of idolatry, especially among women in a friendship, it's so easy for a physical relationship to follow. And so that's exactly what happened. And this experience sort of springboarded me into a life of homosexuality. And I lived as a lesbian for a time uh, before I eventually very happily surrendered my heart to God when I became a Christian. Uh, I'm now happily married, my husband and son and I, and we've got one on the way. Uh, we live in Eastern North Carolina, and I'm a provisionally licensed marriage and family therapist in North Carolina. Now, I get to walk alongside um, individuals and couples and families who are wrestling through their gender identity or their sexual identity, whether in their own lives or in the lives of a loved one. I also get to volunteer with a uh, Christian organization called the Strength and Weakness Ministries. This is a a ministry that seeks to bridge the gap between the LGBTQ community and God's church through awareness, education, and support. So we've got lots of online tools there for you to check out if you're interested in learning more about this topic. Uh, we do workshops to train your, your group or your church on, on some of these topics as well, same-sex attraction, transgender. Probably one of the best resources we have are our support groups um, that we offer to parents of LGBTQ children and to uh, Christians who are experiencing unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. So uh, you can check that out at strengthinweakness.org. Uh, before we dive into this big topic, I just want to mention these two scholars here. If you have a desire to really dive deep into the topic of transgender, I really encourage you to check out these two scholars. Uh, they really do a great job of just trying to make this very complex topic attainable. Uh, speaking of books, I've got to mention this one too. This is a, a new book that came out a couple of months ago by Guy Hammond, who's the executive director of the Strength and Weakness Ministries. He's just back there actually selling this book. Uh, so you can walk out with it today. This book goes through every argument in pro-gay theology and uh, talks about what the Bible has to say about it. There's a chapter in the back about transgender, gender identity, some of the things we'll be talking about today. And then some frequently asked questions that are answered in the back there as well. So check that out before you leave. Um, so before we do anything with this topic, let's talk about some terms just to help orient us to this discussion. There are a lot of terms out there today. It's overwhelming, right? Uh, my take on this is we are not of this world, right? So I don't think we need to feel compelled to stay abreast of every single new term that comes out within this discussion. However, though we're not of this world, we do live in it, right? And I think part of what Paul was talking about when he calls us to be all things to all people uh, is just having a foundational understanding of the language of this world so that we can communicate better with people, so that we can reach their hearts for God. So in that light, let's uh, take a look. It's just some of the foundational terms here. Uh, let's see if I can get it to work. There we go. Uh, transgender is a big, huge umbrella term that encompasses a lot of different gender identity experiences. Um, but in its most simplest form, the most simple definition we could give is that transgender is a term someone could use to convey that they don't adhere to a gender uh, that's the same gender that they were assigned at birth. <clears throat> 
So someone who identifies as transgender could use any number of terms to describe themselves, including some of the ones that you see there. Uh, a transgender female was assigned a male at birth, now identifies as female. A transgender male was assigned female at birth, now identifies as male. Um, sex has to do with biology, and it's tied to reproductive organs and secondary sex characteristics like chromosomes and hormones. Gender used to be used synonymously with sex, and some people still use these terms interchangeably, but uh, today it really has a couple of different meanings. Gender identity is someone's personal, internal sense of their gender, while their gender expression is their external expression of that internal gender identity. Um, Non-binary is a term used to convey that someone does not adhere to a gender binary, male and female. They may see gender as existing on a spectrum, and so they also may use any number of terms to describe themselves, including, but certainly not limited to, some of the ones that you see there. And then sexual orientation is really not related to these terms. Uh, sexual orientation is who you're attracted to, but this is not necessarily tied to or dependent on someone's gender identity or gender expression. Gender dysphoria is a term used by the mental health community. It's a clinical mental health diagnosis that indicates that someone has marked incongruence over their biological sex and their internal experience of their gender identity. So in order for this to be diagnosed, this incongruence also has to be accompanied by what's called marked distress. So distress that affects typical functioning in everyday life. So typically people with diagnosed with gender dysphoria might say that from their earliest memory, they felt that they're in the wrong body, and this has negatively affected a lot of areas of their life. Just a side note here, uh, there have been statistics that show that up to 80% of children who experience gender dysphoria early on in their life outgrow it once they go through puberty. Up to 80%, it's just a tidbit there to keep in mind. Um, sort of the new term on the block right now is rapid onset gender dysphoria, or adolescent onset gender dysphoria. This is kind of a new phenomenon that psychologists are still learning about, um, but the way that it's viewed right now is that this is a much quicker process. Right? These are not necessarily people that would say that from their earliest memory they felt that they're in the wrong body. These people might say that this feeling of incongruence with their gender happened quickly, usually within adolescence between the ages of about 12 to uh, 18. So what I've seen, just in my personal practice, is that people whose experience falls more in line with this rapid onset gender dysphoria, they usually use the term transgender or another term within that umbrella to describe who they are rather than how they are or how they experience their gender identity. So whatever, whatever term they use is very tied to their identity, which is a really big deal during this age range, trying to piece together who you are. Uh, there has been research that says that rapid onset gender dysphoria is more prominent in natal females, and that there tends to be more of a social um, influence on this, you know, uh, peer influence, YouTube, social media, things like that. So people who experience rapid onset gender dysphoria, they may or may not end up undergoing uh, sexual reassignment surgery or hormone replacement therapy, but typically these people do reject the idea of a gender binary and ascribe to one or multiple terms under that big umbrella term transgender. Uh, so now that we have an idea of some of these terms, let's talk about the spectrum of this term transgender, because this is a really big, broad term. One of the scholars that I referenced earlier, Mark Yarhouse, he likes to say that if you've met one person who calls themselves transgender, you've only met one person. Because this is a really broad topic, right? That encompasses a lot of different gender identity experiences. It's like trying to figure out what language someone speaks 
and they tell you what continent they're from. Like that might help us narrow things down a little bit, but that's not really gonna help us to effectively communicate and understand that person. And so similarly, this term transgender gives us just a little bit of information about someone's gender identity. We really have a lot more work to do outside of this big uh, term to determine this person's unique experience with their gender identity. I think when we hear this term, we automatically assume that people are on the far side of the spectrum. Right, they feel like they're trapped in the wrong body, they want to undergo sexual reassignment surgery, hormone replacement therapy. Well, that could be some people's experience, but then there are people way on the other side of the spectrum who are saying, you know, I'm fine with my body, or at least mostly fine with my body and my sign sex, but I rebel against the, the socially constructed gender norms that have been forced upon me, and so therefore, I too am transgender. And then of course, there are tons of experiences that fall somewhere in between the spectrum. You know, I've often wondered if I would have used this term transgender if I grew up in today's cultural climate. You know, I shared with you guys, I grew up very insecure in my femininity. I didn't like wearing dresses and makeup. I liked wearing baggy shorts and playing basketball, you know. Uh, given the time I grew up in, this did not immediately lead me to the conclusion that I should live as a man. But if I grew up in today's cultural climate, where this term is so used and praised nowadays, I wonder if I would have applied this term transgender to my experience of just simply rebelling against these culturally constructed gender norms. So we really have a lot more work to do outside of this term. We gotta dig beyond the term and find out the story. Now let's go back for a second and take a look at some different stages of development and how they might impact gender identity development. Uh, it's from the very tender ages of about four to six that children become avid observers of their parents. This is the age where children start to recognize gender roles within their families, and they begin to develop personal expectations about uh, you know, cultural beliefs and expectations related to gender. Uh, something called gender typicality starts to form as children begin to notice whether they think and behave and act the way that others of their same sex do. And if a child is unable to emulate these personal expectations of gender roles, this may affect what's called their gender contentedness or their feeling of efficacy as it relates to their gender. So this has the potential to lead to a lot of confusion and frustration, even shame for children in this age range that are struggling with some of these developmental milestones. Uh, then from about the ages of 6 to 11, as children's sexual orientation and gender identity continues to develop, their sphere of influence now expands beyond just their parents, and it includes their friendships. In fact, a, a key component of this developmental stage is social competence, or the ability to create and maintain meaningful relationships. Now, struggling with aspects of social competence could be devastating enough as a child, but if it's coupled with unresolved issues from that previous stage of development, mainly gender contentedness, this could really snowball for a child and create some difficulties, not the least of which could be having a difficult time relating to peers of the same gender. Uh, the central process item in this stage of development is education. This is a, a broad definition of education, right? The kind of education where our children learn about what our culture values as important. And this type of education happens everywhere, all the time. In our homes, in our churches, on TV, on social media, in peer relationships, in public. Everywhere we look, there are clues as to what our culture values. Think about some of the lessons that our kids are learning today from our culture. Things like, your emotion 
equals truth. If you disagree with someone, you hate them. Love of self is the most important type of love. Right? Being in a majority is inherently bad. Being in a minority is inherently good. These are the kinds of lessons that our kids are learning from our culture, and they're soaking it up like sponges, and it is absolutely affecting their gender and their sexual identities. Now, while parents and friends might have maintained sort of an, an equal influence on children up until this stage, it's usually in early adolescence, between the ages of about 12 to 18, that children now begin to mainly be influenced by their peers. In fact, uh, the central process item in this stage of development is group identity, where teens and preteens are actively looking for where they belong in this world outside of their parents' homes. And so this developmental stage is sort of the championship of sexual orientation and gender identity development, because though they've been forming up until now, it's usually in this stage that uh, they're formalized and then eventually expressed to other people. So, uh, I just noticed that was a little messed up there, sorry. Um, now that we have, you know, sort of a foundational understanding here of some of the terms and how gender identity forms, let's take a look at what the Bible says about this. You know, this is a broad topic in the Bible where a lot of scaffolding is needed. Um, gender in the Bible is very layered. There are lots of scriptures we could dive into, Hebrew and Greek terms we could dissect. We don't have that kind of time, and I'm not the best person to walk you through all of that. You're going to want someone with a theology degree to do that for you. Uh, but I will share with you just my foundational understanding of what the Bible says about this. Um, first, my understanding is that there is a clear binary in the Bible. You know, Genesis 1 27 is talking about the creation of humans. It says, God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. There's the binary. Now, it's true. Some people refute this and say, well, yeah, but this isn't an exhaustive list of what God created, right? They might use the example of rivers and marshes or frogs, right? These things are not listed in the creation account, but they do exist today. And so, yes, that's true. I would say to that, uh, you know, this is a, a foundational look at what God created, not an exhaustive one. However, I, you know, I would say to that, um, we do see rivers and marshes and frogs in other parts of the Bible. We do not, however, see a reference to a gender outside of male and female. In fact, whenever mankind is referred to in the rest of the Bible, it's in binary categories, right? Husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. And when crossing gender boundaries is mentioned, it's mentioned only in the negative. And we see that from a couple of examples here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.9 uses this term malakoi, which means soft or effeminate, to refer to the passive partner in male same-sex sexual relationships. Many scholars believe that this term encompassed men who behaved like women, so people who cross gender boundaries. Uh, of course, Deuteronomy 22.5 speaks against cross-dressing, um, and uh, many scholars believe this was to set God's people apart by not having them blur the boundary lines of gender. But I wanted to make special mention of this scripture because unfortunately I think it's been mis misused or maybe misunderstood a lot. First, the word that's used here for detests or abomination in some translations is used all throughout the Bible to describe different practices that God does not approve of for his people. For example, uh, idolatry, this term is used. Child sacrifice, this term is used. Uh, in Proverbs 6, when it talks about six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, this is the same word that's used. So this is not God uh, singling out, crossing gender boundaries as the only or the most sinful act that there is. Right? This is not God being transphobic. Uh, this is God just giving one more practice 
that is not acceptable for his holy people. But second, I think we need to be culturally aware with this. You know, several years ago now, we had a, a young woman reach out to the Strength and Weakness Ministries, and she was uh, getting this pressure from her church leadership to stop wearing this more androgynous clothing. You know, she was really wrestling through her gender identity, and she was made to feel like, we don't care what you're going through, just don't wear that, or you gotta go, right? It's causing too much of a stir. And so this poor young woman did not get the guidance and the direction and the love that she so desperately needed. She got handed a list of cold standards and ultimately felt like she didn't belong in God's kingdom because of her clothing. I think we need to be culturally aware with this. If a woman were to put on a men's tunic in biblical times, it would have been very obvious that she was attempting to cross God's gender boundaries. Now, our culture is such that men and women's clothing has a lot of overlap, right? Some of them look very similar. So I think we need to be careful not to get so legalistic with the actual articles of clothing and look more to the heart of blurring the boundary lines of gender. This seems to be the transgression based on my understanding of the Bible, blurring the boundary lines of gender. Of course, this is the boundary lines of gender that God has laid out, not necessarily our culture. So there's clearly a binary. I also see that there's an intentional sameness and difference within this gender binary. You know, uh, the author of Genesis is making this clear correlation between us being made in the image of God and our sex. They're related. You know, he says, God created mankind in his own image. And then he amplifies it and says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So somehow these two are linked, us being made in the image of God and the gender binary that he calls us to live in. Also, uh, twice in Genesis, Eve is referred to as a suitable helper using this Hebrew word, kinegdo, which is actually made up of two different Hebrew words, a key, which means as, alike, or like, and neged, which means in front of or opposite. And so we see this really clear illustration that Adam and Eve are both same and different. They're both humans, which is the key part, right, the same, and they're different, male and female. This kind of parallels the sameness and difference that we see in the image of God, right? God is all Father, Son, and Spirit. They're the same, yes, but they're also different. And we see that in our maleness and our femaleness, too. And something about our sexed difference helps to make up the full image of God that we were created in. Right. Uh, I also see that, you know, clearly in Scripture that our bodies are purposeful and sacred, uh, you know, in Genesis 2, we often see that word rib used for how Eve was created from Adam. But the Hebrew word that's used there is used about 40 other times in the Bible, and it never means rib. <laughs> it usually refers to the site of a sacred building or structure, like the tabernacle or the temple. So Adam, and subsequently Eve's bodies, were referred to as a sacred structure that houses the presence of God on earth. Now, we know that altering the temple or the tabernacle was cause for extreme punishment, so we can maybe make the correlation that doing the same to our bodies would be equally forbidden and harmful to us and to God. Uh, we also see a lot of evidence in Scripture that God took great care in creating our bodies. You know, Psalm 139, the term that's used there for fearfully and wonderfully made, literally means to quake in awe and reverence. This is some very intentional language. This is not a haphazard design that God created us with. Uh, and, and we do see that we will undergo some changes when our mortal bodies are resurrected into spiritual bodies in heaven. But there's nothing that I see that says that we won't be sexed beings even in our heavenly resurrected bodies. I think we see that with Jesus, right? When he was res resurrected, he was still sexed within the gender binary. 
And 1 John 3, 2 says, we're going to be like him when we're resurrected. So what I see is that we are embodied souls, not just souls with bodies, right? There's a purpose to our bodies. It is who we are, not just part of who we are. Our bodies are intentional. Um, I think we see this over and over in scripture exemplified, right? In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul uses the terms your bodies and yourselves interchangeably when he's calling people to righteousness. So clearly, I think the Bible portrays that our bodies are integral to our being and that they are purposefully sexed within that binary. And then finally, I think it explicitly says in scripture that sexed difference is foundational to marriage. Uh, you know, in Genesis 2, we've already looked at it, right? It says, uh, woman is created from man, they're the same in species, different in sex for a reason, and that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife in marriage. And just to stymie any confusion, Jesus reiterates this in the New Testament as well as part of both covenants, old and new. He says, haven't you read? The Creator made them male and female, and for this reason they will enter into marriage. For what reason? Because he made them male and female. So we see this very significant link in both Genesis and in Matthew, that marriage is the union between two sexually different people. Now, before we move on from what the Bible says, I want to talk about eunuchs really quick. Um, you know, there's a lot of pro-gay theology or queer theology that will posit that because Jesus mentions eunuchs in the Bible and because he mentions them in a positive, supportive light, that that is proof that more than two genders exist, that gender exists on a spectrum, and that God is pro-trans, right? Uh, I am not a theological scholar, but I don't understand this argument at all. Uh, let's talk about what a eunuch is really quick. A eunuch is a man that does not have testicles, right? Whether he was born that way, made that way, chose to become that way, eunuch is not a noun that replaces the designation of man. Eunuch is an adjective that describes a type of man. So based on my understanding, this would mean that eunuchs would exist within the gender binary that God created. Now, don't get me wrong. Living as a eunuch uh, would come with some very nuanced complexities, right? Uh, especially in such a patriarchal society like that of Jesus' time. I mean, masculinity then and now is highly regarded, and not having testicles would significantly impact a man's standing in such a, such a society. Not to mention other factors of status and importance, right? Like his ability to procreate or his testosterone levels, which could lead to less stereotypical masculine traits like a deep voice or hair in the body or, uh, you know, aggression. So I think that tremendous amounts of compassion needs to be exuded toward those living outside of the cultural gender norm. I also think we need to be confronting these, you know, gender stereotypes in our own hearts so that people living outside of the norm don't inherently feel sinful simply because they don't match up to this earthly ideal. But I don't believe that Jesus mentioning eunuchs in the Bible is proof of a third gender or uh, you know, proof that God is okay with us crossing gender boundaries. So what I see from the Bible is that you know, it's very clear that God created two and only two distinct and equally sacred genders. However, though there are only two genders mentioned in the Bible, that doesn't mean that there's only two ways of living out our gender. Right? There are not two archetypes in the Bible, one for what a man's supposed to look like and one for what a woman's supposed to look like. And I think in our society, Satan has really put a lot of constraints on this. You know, uh, men are supposed to be aggressive and non-emotional, and women are to be kind and gentle and communicative. And perhaps where we have the strictest constraints on masculinity and femininity is within the church body, right? But these constraints, these, these socially constructed gender norms, 
are not always biblical. God's expectations of the expression of our maleness and our femaleness are a lot more flexible than our society's ideas. I think we see that portrayed over and over in scripture. Uh, some of the most prominent characters in the Bible may not have lived up to our societal expectations of gender norms, right? God himself demolishes gender stereotypes. Uh, he refers to himself in a nurturing maternal role, even identifying with a, a pregnant or nursing mother. Jesus demolishes gender stereotypes. He showed emotion, he cried, he was sad and afraid at times. He even refers to himself in a maternal world too. He says, I belong to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Uh, David, the warrior king. Oh, this thing isn't working right, sorry guys. Uh, you know, David, mighty masculine David, right? He was tending to the sheep in the field when his brothers were fighting a war. He was the, the dancing, music playing, poetry writing king that exuded tremendous amounts of emotion and vulnerability. And then of course there are tons of women in the Bible who are uplifted as godly, righteous women that break gender stereotypes as well. Deborah, she led men into war, right? J.L. was like super violent, uh, right? Ruth, she provided for her mother-in-law the way that a son would, sweating, toiling in the fields. The Proverbs 31 woman, she's a modern woman, providing for her family, buying property. So we see that sometimes our idea of what a man and a woman is is not always based on what the Bible says a man and a woman is. I think we need to be really mindful of this because like we talked about, our awareness of these kinds of stereotypes starts very early in life. And it really affects our development and our belief about ourselves and the world around us. You know, these gender stereotypes that can feel so oppressive to people all throughout their childhood, though they're not typically able to express it until their teenage years when they say, you know, mom, dad, I'm transgender. What we don't see in that teenage proclamation is the decade or more of confusion, isolation, shame, even perceived failure at meeting the, the cultural expectations and stereotypes related to their gender. So I think this is something that, when we encounter it, deserves a tremendous amount of care and compassion and understanding. So, wow, that was a lot of information <laughs> and a lot to process. Now let's talk about what do we do with this information? How do we help with boots on the ground, the people in our lives who are struggling with some of these things? I would say that the most common question I get related to this topic is how do I love someone who's going through this but still uphold the standards of God at the same time? So let's try to answer that together. I think first and foremost, we have to look at Jesus's example, right? Uh, in Luke 15, it says that the untouchables of that day, right? The sinners, the tax collectors, the people who were ostracized from society, they were seeking Jesus out. He didn't chase them down. They gathered around him. I can't imagine that they would do that willingly unless they felt such incredible love and warmth and unconditional acceptance first. So how can we do this? I think there are several things we can do. Uh, like we talked about, we need to be confronting those gender stereotypes that exist in all of our hearts. Right? We've got to dig into the Bible, find out God's expectations of masculinity and femininity and correcting some of these distortions. You know, we can't continue to stuff gender in a box that God did not create. You know, if my parents had said to me when I was growing up, uh, wow, Evelyn, 
you are so passionate and indignant, just like when Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple. Right? Or, whoa, you are so direct, just like when Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Like, maybe we can incorporate more Jesus' love next time, but I see you being an image bearer to Christ and your passion and your zeal and your, and your desire for justice. If this were the sentiment for me growing up, then perhaps I would not have convinced myself that these were manly traits of mine and that they were good for a man to have, but shameful for me to have. So I think we need to be a confrontational in our own hearts and homes about what is a biblical representation of masculinity and femininity and what has been distorted for us in just living on this earth. Um, you know, if there were one thing I would hope someone could walk away from this remembering, it would be this. We have got to create safety and space for those in our lives who are dealing with some of these things. Our homes, our churches, our communities, all should offer safety and a sense of belonging. These are real things that real people are dealing with. Shame multiplies in silence. I'm going to say that again. Shame multiplies in silence. We don't have to have the right answer. We don't even have to know what to say. But we do need to create safety and space for those in our lives who are dealing with some of these things. I think along with that, we can remember that we are dealing with people, not issues. Right? Sometimes we hear, we get calls and say, oh, we got a same-sex attraction issue over here, a transgender issue over here, right? That's very impersonal. It would do us well to remember that these are people, people who God loves just as much as he loves you and me. People who, when God looks at them, he sees his creation, his beloved son or daughter. That alone should make us quake in awe and reverence before someone else, right? Just because these are people that might experience something that we don't uh, experience or maybe even that we don't understand or are afraid of, that doesn't mean that these are people that God doesn't want in his kingdom, right? They belong here just as much as you or I do. Um, and so along with that, each person has an individual story that needs to be unpacked. And so we can get to know them and their unique experience, which requires listening and loving and validation. You know, we're not really trained very well in our modern society to listen in order to understand. We are trained to listen in order to respond, right? Can't tell you how many prepare to answer classes I've been to, right? This trains us how to respond to earthly arguments. I think there's a place for that for sure, but I think we all need to be better at listening in order to understand someone's experience. And so we can do that uh, by asking questions. You know, when you're asking questions, sometimes I think we're afraid to ask questions. Maybe we're afraid it'll affirm that lifestyle or, or maybe it will offend someone. Uh, I'll tell you, every trans person I've ever met has been more than happy to answer any of my questions when I approach them respectfully and lovingly. So as you're asking questions, try to ask open-ended questions that keep the conversation going. Things like, uh, tell me about your experience with your gender identity, or what is it about being a man or a woman that appeals to you? Speaking, about, speaking of questions, how about this one? What would you like to be called? All right, let's park here for a second, because I know this is a question on a lot of people's minds. Do we call someone by their preferred gender pronoun or name or not? Uh, I would say that there are some considerations to be made with this. The first consideration that I make is, is this person a Christian? If so, I think we have a pretty clear God-ordained responsibility to exhort that person toward obedience and righteousness. Now, we need to do this in a really loving, compassionate way, you know, implementing everything we've talked about up until now. But I do think it's our responsibility to help them see that there's a disconnect between their life and their doctrine, right? If this person is not a Christian, 
I wonder if this boils down to a matter of personal conscience, right? The Bible is very clear that we as Christians are not meant to cross gender boundaries. The Bible does not have any direction on how Christians are supposed to address non-Christians that do cross that boundary. So I think this is something that we all have to sit before the Lord in and wrestle what our own consciences will allow. And then I would say the, the final um, consideration to be made with this is if the how might be more important than the what, right? What we decide, whether to call someone by their gender pronoun or name or not, might not be as important as how we implement that decision. If we decide, no, I cannot in good conscience call someone by a different pronoun, I think there's a way to convey that that is respectful and loving, but also does not denigrate your faith, right? Um, something like, you know, my, my child, my friend, my loved one, I've prayed, I've got advice, I've begged God for wisdom, and I just cannot in good conscience call you by a name or a pronoun that represents a gender that God did not create you as. This has nothing to do with you, it has everything to do with me and my faith in God. I never want to bring you harm or distress or disrespect, so I will do my best to only refer to you by your name or only tap you on the shoulder when I need you, right? We can convey to them what we can do, where we can meet them, while we also hold the boundary in our faith. I will tell you, though, that I personally refer to any non-Christian however they'd wish to identify. I have found this to be a small but very powerful gesture that assures them that I see them, I respect them, and I'm gonna respect their boundary here. Uh, this has really you know, helped to keep the bridge of communication open with a lot of people that might have otherwise written me off. And so my conscience allows this because legally, trans people have the right to identify however they'd like to. Right? This is not breaking the earthly law that they're under, and they haven't agreed to be under God's law. So though they are in violation of it, I cannot hold them to that. Right, 1 Corinthians 5 makes it pretty clear that we are, in fact, called to judge, but only those inside God's church. The responsibility of judging those outside of God's church lies with God alone. So I see this as similar to referring to a same-sex married couple as husband and husband or wife and wife. Legally, they have the right to marry, and they have not agreed to a covenantal relationship with God, so I cannot hold them to that. Um, and so I think that's another part of this in, in, you know, in figuring out what do we do. We have to recognize and respect the free will that God gives each of us. Right. You know, um, who are we to strip that free will from them? Um, I think, you know, as we're upholding the boundaries and, and the love of God, we need to be really clear about our conviction on this, right? Some of the most heartbreaking stories are of trans people coming to a church for several months, even years, and then after establishing deep relationships and a feeling of belonging, then learning that the church holds to a historically Christian perspective of the biblical sexual ethic. I think we need to be really clear and upfront about this. We never want anyone to feel duped by us or by God. But as we're being clear, I don't think it's necessary to repeat our conviction over and over on this. Right? Sometimes we fall into this. We feel that repeating it uh, might absolve us of any inadvertent affirmations we may have given. But this isn't necessary. right? If you've been clear once on your conviction on this, repeating it, especially unsolicited over and over, may only serve to fuel isolation and shame in the other person. Ultimately, create a barrier between you and them, and maybe even them and God. You know, uh, the Bible says it's over 200 times the word remember as a command. I think this is pretty significant. I'm, I'm thinking God knew that part of the human condition is to be shaped 
by the world that you're a part of. And so therefore, we are in constant need of remembering God's truths. And, you know, this is a particularly difficult time to be a part of God's kingdom because for the first time in history, we are living in a postmodern society where truth is subjective, it's relative, and it depends on what a person feels is right or wrong. So before we can introduce anyone else to God's truth, we have to be rooted in the truth of God ourselves, right? The truth, capital T, truth of God, is that our emotions are not good moral compasses. The truth is that our identity is in Christ. No matter what we feel, we live for him. The truth is that if we love him, we will obey him, even if we don't understand the why of what he asks. I really believe this has to be at the core of our walk with God, especially among our youth, uh, because this concept of striving to love God more than self is becoming uh, more and more of a foreign concept right now, um, especially among young people. You know, we, we hear this sentiment multiple times a day, I'm sure, um, something to the effect of, I have to be true to me, right? I have to live my truth. I have to be unapologetic, unapologetically me. I wholeheartedly agree with all of these sentiments. I just don't see how they make sense outside of the lens of God, right? But being true to me is being wrapped up in Christ. Living my truth is obeying out of my love for God. Being unapologetically me is striving to become the person that God intended for me to be. Only as I get closer to God can I discover who my true self is, right? Who knows me better than my creator, who carefully knit me together and knows every hair on my head. I really believe this has to be at the core, a foundational tenet in our walk with God if we stand a chance against this particular battle that Satan has waged against sex, sexuality, and gender. And then finally, I think we need to give special attention to our hearts, right? Uh, we get lots of calls into the strength and weakness ministry from people who want to know the exact words to say to someone who's dealing with gender identity incongruence. And I think that's a really important thing to give some very careful thought to. However, we have a secret weapon in all of this. We know that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. So I always encourage people to spend more time on preparing their frame of heart than their frame of mind. For me, if I dwell on who I am before God and on the love and grace and forgiveness and mercy that I've been given by him, it's impossible to sit in judgment of someone else. It's impossible not to see that person with the eyes of God. It's impossible not to have the Holy Spirit move through you. And the people in our lives who are dealing with some of these things, they're not looking for our perfect words. They're looking for love and care and compassion. They're going to remember how they felt around us, even if our words are imperfect. So I hope that's relieving to you as we're trying to contextualize here how to have the transgender conversation, uh, that it matters much more the condition of your heart than the condition of your, of your mind or your words. Uh, so that is what I have in a very brief overview of transgender and gender identity. I think we have maybe about five minutes for a Q&A. So Doug's going to run around with a microphone uh, for anyone that might have a question. just like to ask, what was your experience? Who spoke into you or poured into you that made you turn back to Christ? Yeah, great question. The question is, I'm just going to have to repeat it for the recording. <laughs> so the question is, you know, what changed in my life? What made me turn to God, basically? I would say um, 
I probably, like most of you, uh, the reason I came to God is because I got really tired. I, I can really identify with the woman at the well, right? Where I, I just felt like I got so tired of looking for fulfillment and eternal joy in this world. I felt like I was living this roller coaster life, right? Like uh, if I had friends or if I was in a relationship or if something, you know, I was excited about and life was happening, then I felt happy. And then as soon as that went away, I would feel really down in the depths. And I just got so sick of this. And, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, so fortunately I, you know, had the thought, huh, I wonder if I should try going back to God and seeing if I missed something there, right? Uh, and so I did, and I, you know, I'm so glad that he showed me that I, I can still be happy and sad throughout my life, but that doesn't, that no longer affects my eternal joy, right? My eternal identity, and I would say that's what I kind of got tired of. Um, thank you so much for sharing today. It was great. Um, I have a question. Me and my husband lead a church in Seattle, and so we have a lot of um, these discussions, but when studying the Bible with people, I'm studying the Bible with a woman, and um, this topic comes up frequently about what your church believes about this. And as I'm studying out the cross and sin and all these things, I'm not trying to make that the highlight, but I also want the best way to address it um, in these studies with people so that, um, you know, just any advice about how to address this as you're trying to help people become Christians. Yeah, great question. And I think, you know, as you're saying that, I've never thought this before, but I thought, gosh, in our modern world, this might have to become more of a reality in Bible studies, right? This is something that our whole culture right now is consumed with. And so maybe this ought to make a line item in some of our Bible studies with people to just discuss God's expectations on gender, on sex, and sexuality, which have really been distorted by the world, but also by the church, especially sex and sexuality, right? So that might be something great to cover just, you know, generally in your Bible studies with people. I would say, too, um, you know, you can always direct people to the Strength and Weakness Ministries. This has been really helpful for people who uh, are dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. We have support groups for them, for people who want to abide by the biblical sexual ethic. We also have a book called Thriving Beyond the Margins that has, um, I think, eight Bible studies that goes through what the Bible says on this. So that might be a great accompaniment to your Bible studies just to walk through uh, specifically what the Bible says on this through a loving, godly, uh, graceful lens. Asexual experience? Or just like if they are right now going through being, you know, same sex attracted and they oh, want okay. to um, live it out. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a great question and something that, you know, sheds light on this important nuance to sexuality, especially for women. I would say, you know, sexuality for men tends to be pretty cut and dry, right? A lot of times it's uh, based on physical attraction. For women, there's a lot more complexity and a lot more nuance. For women, it tends to be mostly based on emotional connection, which is, and uh, you know, in addition to that, women have the ability to be sexually aroused by any sexual stimulus. 
So this really complicates things, right? A lot of women who have never felt an attraction toward another woman might experience that even much later in their life, and that really might take them for a loop, right? So I think a you know, big part of this is just better education on sexuality, uh, because if women from a very young age knew, hey, it's normal to feel you know, arousal toward another woman, that's not something that's so crazy or abnormal, uh, even among heterosexual women, if we knew that, we might be better able to, you know, move through that instead of being so afraid of it, right? But I think especially for women, sexuality can, uh, even especially same-sex attraction, can, it seems like it lies dormant for a time, right? Pops up in certain areas of life, uh, and then sometimes it lies dormant for a time. And that's really normal with female sexuality especially. I would say we all experience that in different temptations, right? Um, I, I struggle with anger, right? Uh, I, I come by it naturally, I got it biologically, but also I grew up in a home where my dad sometimes represented anger in a non-righteous way. And so uh, sometimes I feel less angry in life than I do uh, you know, in other times when I feel more angry, when I'm stressed, or when there's a lot going on. So, um, so I, I would say we all can relate to that. Uh, it's, not, it's not abnormal, and, uh, and when it pops up, you know, uh, we can deal with it then and there. So uh, I just got the flag, we need to stop for time. Uh, to let you guys get to your next session. But thank you so much for being here with me. I appreciate your guys' time. I hope that you were able to walk away with a new understanding of what so many are struggling with. I know I personally greatly appreciated the references that Ellen gave us to combat those who say that we can find proof of LGBT in the Bible. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.